0: Welcome to MuggleCast, your weekly ride into the Wizarding World fandom. I'm Andrew.
1: I'm Eric. I'm Micah.
2: And I'm Laura.
0: And today we start Book 2, Chamber of Secrets, in our chapter-by-chapter series. Before we get started, let's look back briefly at the release of Chamber of Secrets. This is a good story for me, because the book was originally released July 2nd, 1998 in the UK, and then 11 months later... In the U.S., June 2nd, 1999. And as listeners may know, I got into the Harry Potter books thanks to my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Wilson. She read us Sorcerer's Stone in class. She's very proud of me, by the way, that we have Muggle Cast and all oh, that. She, I she love loves it. that. Love it, you love know, she like kind of kicks off my level. When does
1: she want to come on the show? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have Mrs. Wilson on. Come on.
0: We've yeah. wanted to
2: get a teacher on.
0: She may have retired. I don't I don't know. Oh, but, yeah. She, so she, she has more
2: podcast, time. So. I'll be
0: I'm like, I don't want to talk to my fourth. Nice thought, but I don't want to talk to my
3: fourth yeah, yeah. teacher. She, you're podcast. worried about all this, the stories of fourth grade Andrew that would surface. There we go. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I
2: hope she's not listening to this. Andrew's here <laughs> you like, I don't want to talk to her.
0: No, but anyway, so we finish Sorcerer's Stone in fourth grade. And then I think I just happened to go into Borders shortly after that. And right at the front of the store was Chamber of Secrets that had just been released. And there was a special standee. And it was very exciting. It's like, oh, man, I enjoyed hearing this book and read to me in fourth grade. And now here's the sequel. That's exciting. And this was right before summer in America. Like I said, early June. I think we got out of school mid-June. It was probably released purposely for that reason, for Americans, you know, the summer starting, summer reading. So yeah, that's my story. It was very exciting to uh, come across it right at the front of the store.
3: That's cool. Man, that must have been really exciting for like sales clearly were good enough that Scholastic put money into promos that there's like a standee of like the second book coming out because it wasn't until Goblet of Flyer that they did a simultaneous, you know, across the coast release of the book so in America you still had to wait eight nine months like you're saying
0: yeah and I remember reading it under a tent I made in my own bedroom with sheets and golf clubs to prop up the sheets that was that's my clearest
3: memory of Chamber of Secrets did you make the tent specifically for the book reading (laughs) <laughs> Maybe
0: leave me alone, everybody. In my okay, own okay, little okay. well, for it? No, no, I'm not talking to you. I'm saying leave
3: me alone, sister and brother. <laughs> I had bunk beds. Oh, I get it. I get it. I get it. Um, yeah, I had bunk beds, and I was always on the bottom bunk, and the top was just for guests. But I would always drape the sheets. I would like run them through the top bunk to like drape off around the sides. Mm-hmm. So I had my own reading for it and a little light that I made out of an director set and a double A battery. But anyway. I read, uh, this was the first book I read, the first Harry Potter book that I properly read through because I came in off the movie, off the first movie, which by all accounts was very faithful to the first book. So when I wanted more story, I wasn't going to waste any time on that recap stuff. And so Chamber of Secrets holds a, a dear place in my heart for just being the first the first book that I got through um, the year, summer of
1: 2000. Well, you're lucky the first book was so true to... Or sorry, the way I should say it, the <laughs> yeah. movie was so true to the book. Yeah, yeah. So you didn't really need to read it. There wasn't. I mean, there are things obviously we talked about in chapter by chapter that were different, but mm. more or less, it it was pretty good, pretty consistent. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend that for the later books. To your point,
2: yeah, yeah, I, I I agree, and I think we have some points about how there was some effort put into the early chapters of these, you know, first three books to make sure that if somebody came along and hadn't read the earlier installments that they wouldn't be completely lost. But probably starting around Goblet of Fire, you couldn't do that anymore.
3: Yeah, uh, definitely. And, and, and I think that's right, because this was an era where you could just walk into the borders mm-hmm. and whatever book was in the front, you'd be like, oh, what's this? Is it interesting? Not really realizing it's part of a series. So when did you guys first read it, Micah, Laura?
2: I got the first three books for my 11th birthday in 1999, which has always felt really... Poignant and apropos to me that it was my 11th birthday. The funny thing about this story is, I knew I was getting them. So, my birthday is the week before Christmas. And as a kid, I was a terrible sneak and I had a really bad habit of trying to figure out what gifts I was going to get before Christmas and before my birthday. So I knew I was getting these books because I'd found them in my parents' closet. I just didn't know if I was getting them for my birthday or for Christmas. And I was immediately excited about them because people at school were talking about them. And when I saw the covers, my little 11-year-old brain was just like, these look awesome. Like everything about this looks awesome. I can't wait to start reading these. Um, I actually burned through these books in probably about a month. Um, And I specifically, I have a very vivid memory of my childhood bestie, Tiffany, who I still know to this day, walking me through who all the characters were on the covers of the books before I started. So we like looked at sorcerer's stone we looked at chamber of secrets and i remember her pointing out this is harry this is ron this is Ginny." um and that's it's just a really like special like core memory for me um and i remember reading book one and being like wait why isn't Ginny in this book very much (laughs) i got (laughs) to book two and i was like oh that's why
0: Your story made me do a double take because I had totally forgotten that Chamber of Secrets and Prisoner of Azkaban were released in the same year in the U.S.
2: Yeah, within a few months of each other. Wow. Prisoner of Azkaban was like September
0: of 99. I keep seeing varying dates. Who knows? Those dates are all (laughs) sketchy. Like Scholastic doesn't even...
2: (sighs) Yeah, because there wasn't
0: one big moment like there was starting with Goblet of Fire. Right. Right. We'd spoken about Sorcerer's Stone for the longest time. There was no clear release date for that
3: book. Yeah, it wasn't until this year when Bloomsbury started talking about it. And even then, it's like, what did Scholastic do? We don't know.
0: Yeah, so. and I think they finally kind of just like settled on a date that they're just going to go with now, whether it's actually true or not. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Well, that doesn't help folks uh, with time machines from being there on day one of (laughs) getting getting themselves a nice, fabulous first edition. Yeah,
1: it also gives them like an opportunity when it's an anniversary; they can celebrate it for the whole year instead of you know just just one date or one month.
0: Exactly. That's why they need a date.
1: For me, and I think I've told this story before. I was a very late bloomer to the Harry Potter series. Much like Eric, I was introduced to it through the movies and. I got the books from a friend of mine uh, one summer, and I just powered through them. At that point, we were anticipating the release of Half-Blood Prince. And so I read, I believe, the first five books in the early part of the summer of 2005, and then Half-Blood Prince came out that July. So perfect timing. Uh, I don't have too much of a recollection about Chamber of Secrets. Like I said, I I think I was just like powering through at the time. So as we're going to talk about, one of the things that I'm really looking forward to now is the opportunity to really read it with the context of Horcruxes in mind and also connecting the threads, as Laura loves to do, uh, to Half-Blood Prince.
2: Ah, yeah. Yeah.
3: Well, especially because we're revisiting this chapter by chapter, 16 years, I'm sure, after the first time we did it. So um, it's it's a pretty exciting, you know, with the adult perspective and also knowing now what the author has said in interviews about really book six. The book that we know as book six was originally a contender for the slot two of this series, which how would that have worked at all? But <laughs> there's some elements of, say, Snape and uh, blood status, for instance, all the mudblood stuff that really do still fit in the second position here that are going to clearly look ahead, not only to the series as a whole, but to specifically book six. So it's going to be
1: pretty interesting. I, I love too how you said from the adult perspective, because as I looked through this discussion as we were planning it, <laughs> this is a very adult discussion compared yeah. to probably how we analyzed the chapter 16 years ago, you said?
3: It's all on audio. So (laughs) you can go back and
2: see what, oh, she, she swats him with the frying pan. That's hilarious. (laughs) I think what's so jarring about it is the themes are extremely adult, but it's written for children. I mean, at this point in the series, these are absolutely still children's books. I mean, they are they are geared in the writing style and the explanations and the descriptions towards children. And I think about, like, I don't remember, but when I was 11 and reading this for the first time, I don't think it really hit me that what we're seeing here is abuse.
3: Yeah, which let's crack into it. Let's do it. Yeah, Let's begin our chapter by chapter revisit for Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets with chapter one, The Worst Birthday. And of course, No chapter-by-chapter reread would be complete without our seven-word summary. Who's ready? Andrew, you're up first. All right. Let's
0: do this. The day
2: Harry
1: was beaten by
2: family. Okay. (laughs) Oh, this is is already off to a very sad start.
0: We already know which one we're going to redo at the end of this uh, (laughs) chapter by chapter. You know what? We got that out of
3: the way. Fantastic.
1: We're a little rusty. A little rusty.
3: (laughs) Why? I'll take the blame for starting with the. (laughs) Well, no, I, I, well, this is not a non-accurate seven word summary. Yep. This is very true. Harry is in one of the lowest points. I think that he quite ever gets to. So book one ended and it was kind of things were looking up. Harry had just come off of his year at Hogwarts with his friends. He was so looking forward to the holidays. There's this promise of maybe visiting Ron. But the biggest thing, and in fact, the final sentence of the book sees Harry relishing all the tricks he's going to play on the Dursleys because they do not know that he cannot use magic out of school. He's giddy. And. It's this little bit of power that Harry has over his abusive family. But uh, throughout the events of this chapter and the next, we see that that is actually taken away from him, too. And things quickly devolve into basically this state of Harry in lockdown. He cannot let even Hedwig out of her cage to find food. He himself is being given Scraps off the table, essentially, as before. And all of Harry's school books have been locked up. He can't study or do homework or anything. And it just seems like the Dursleys uh, have not gone in a forward accepting direction from their year without him. It hasn't made them any cheerier about his presence in their home.
1: Yeah. And even going back to the end of Sorcerer's Stone, we get kind of the vibe that Molly feels mm-hmm. towards the dursleys and it, it's very clear that uh they come across even to others as as being just there's there's something not right there and to your point about hedwig i thought we could add animal cruelty yeah. to the list of things that the dursleys are responsible for because i'm pretty sure that an owl cannot live locked in a cage for an entire summer without some kind of serious trauma resulting. And I know we can look at this as Hedwig being part of the magical world, but she's still an owl at the end of the day. And she needs to fly. She needs to use her wings. She needs exercise, I would assume. And she is locked up in this cage. Eric, you mentioned she's not being fed either. She's just kind of getting the scraps of Harry's food. So she's not able to hunt This is animal cruelty if we want to look at it that way.
2: A hundred percent. It harkens back to some themes we saw earlier in book one where Harry felt like he was able to identify with the snake at the zoo, right? He felt like he too was locked away. And now we see Hedwig locked away with Harry who is also being locked away. So these themes of isolation and imprisonment continue into this book
1: totally and what i find kind of comical about it from the dursley standpoint is vernon's always saying you know keep that bird quiet shut her up <laughs> and harry's like well if you would let her out yeah she wouldn't make all this noise she's bored yeah. She, if
3: i could let her out for just an hour
0: it's like what people will say about dogs sometimes it's like the dog might be uh, might have a lot of energy in the house but that's because you're not actually walking it outside and you don't you don't give the dog the time to use all that energy where it should be so they're being
3: annoying inside absolutely and the dursleys may be paranoid or say that they're paranoid about somebody seeing the owl and that's not like a usual thing to have as a pet but Owls are quiet. I've never seen an owl. They don't burst out of the the tree that they're they're perched in with like this huge ruckus, and then they make sounds while they're flying. No, owls are
0: really quiet. The only time they cause a ruckus is if it's opening night at Cursed Child, and they've got stage fright. That's the only time, though. That poor owl.
2: (laughs) And I mean, I don't know about y'all. I mean, I kind of grew up in the suburbs, which, I mean, that's what Privet Drive is. We had owls. What we didn't have, we didn't out and have. About. <laughs> That's
0: awesome, wild owls. You're saying,
2: yeah, I mean, out at night, like if you went outside at night, yeah. you could hear them hooting. Sometimes we didn't have snowy white owls like Hedwig. Yeah, like yeah. I understand she could be attention grabbing, but it's not like I think that it's just wrong to say that it would be impossible to see a wild owl yeah. somewhere near Pervet Drive.
0: Would you ever hoot back, Laura, if you heard them hooting? I, I did actually.
2: I did. They never talked back to me because Oh. I mean, I pro who knows what I said.
0: <laughs> Be free, sweet owl. Don't get
3: captured by the cursed child in the UK. Right. Run free. <laughs> so examining kind of the other side of this slide. There's no other side to child abuse, by the way, I'll just come out and say that. But looking at what Harry's kind of upset about, it's his friends aren't speaking to him, which we'll talk about in a moment. But You know, there seems to be some kind of understanding that Harry has homework assigned um, that he should be doing. He'd at least maybe feel closer if he could read his books closer to his friends, closer to the Wizarding World. And an interesting line that I pulled out of chapter one is what did the Dursleys care if Harry lost his place on the Gryffindor Quidditch team because he hadn't practiced all summer? Now, I just want to call that out real quickly because exactly where does Harry think he's going to be practicing Quidditch? I feel like it's reasonable to not have access to your broom if you live in a muggle suburb of a muggle town that's you know, not really going to have many wide open spaces.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I guess going over to the Weasleys, though he hasn't been there yet, so he doesn't know what that life yeah. is like. But Yeah,
2: but Ron invited him over at the end of book one and maybe he assumed that because the Dursleys were afraid of him being magical, that he would have a little more freedom to go places that he wanted to go. But clearly that's not the case here. I do have a question though for y'all. It feels inconsistent to me that Petunia at the very least wouldn't know that Harry isn't supposed to do magic outside of school. She, her sister was a witch. She grew up with her coming home over the summer. I don't think that law changed between when Lily was a child
1: and Mm. Harry
2: was a child. So I'm just wondering, I mean, did Lily also keep this a secret from Petunia? That doesn't really feel (laughs) like it's in character for her.
3: Mm. No, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I wonder if she, because if she does know that Harry's not allowed and she still punishes him anyway for like making jokes at Dudley or, you know, Dudley's expense, then that makes it worse almost (laughs) to like what she's doing for it to him.
2: Well, and they freak out and Harry says magic and they lose it. And I'm just thinking she should know, like maybe Dudley and Vernon don't know, but Petunia should know.
0: I guess she could think, well, maybe the rules have changed. And she doesn't Maybe. want to question it because she's afraid of what vicious Harry will do if she dare question the rules.
1: It's also possible that she doesn't want to reveal more than she's already revealed to Vernon and or Dudley about what she knows about the wizarding world. And uh, you know, we see her slip up a little bit later on in the series. Yeah, uh, with the Dementors, right? But. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I could see her not wanting to kind of reveal the breadth of her knowledge of the wizarding world, especially to Vernon. On the Quidditch front, though, I'm kind of surprised Harry didn't get direction from Oliver Wood or McGonagall about practicing during the summer and – you know, wouldn't they maybe even have some summer practices where he'd go up to Hogwarts and
2: be be with the team?
0: What if the Golden Snitch had like a practice mode you could activate and it's just kind of like moving around you really fast and you just have to try to grab it? Just something like a subtle like practice mode where you can do it anywhere. Like even in the Dursley's backyard, like it goes like 10 feet up tops.
3: We need Dumbledore's Dumbledore's mirror universe where Harry can just go all out, even in, in the middle of town, you know, and city buses can be passing nobody's real because it's all a shadow that would be the ideal place to practice quidditch it definitely definitely begs the question so kind of my big thing because uh as this chapter and the very next one they're both really tied in to this abuse that that harry's feeling it's like a really main theme and again i really don't know that we would have harped on this so many years ago when we were first doing this chapter but kind of i want to ask what what is the solution if Fred and George and Ron don't come and get Harry because that is this, you know, wonderful escape we'll get in chapter three. But there is no escaping these Dursleys. Otherwise, there's no reasoning with them. The level of abuse and, and total lockdown. In fact, Harry suspects that he won't even be allowed to go back to Hogwarts, that they would somehow prevent him from making it back if they just try hard enough and they're trying surely somebody else would have showed up though
2: yeah my to hope get him out. is that dumbledore or somebody would have shown up and been like hey term started last week where
1: are you where's my where boy where are you
2: where is he
1: <laughs> it does seem though that like every book there's the chance that harry is not going to get away from privet drive because of the dursleys and then ultimately something happens that is that kind of intervention, and and I definitely think that as we see the treatment of Harry get worse in the next chapter, I would hope that if Dumbledore was made aware of just how bad Harry's condition has become, that he would step in to your point, Laura, or send his howler to Petunia way earlier than he does because he's just mm. an enabler. Honestly, I, I, I know we we went hard on Dumbledore in the last episode. Uh, yeah, we did of uh, the lies. But he he's really allowing Harry to be massively mistreated by the Dursleys. I can't imagine that he really just doesn't know what's going on. I, I find that so hard to believe.
3: If you think that it builds character to leave a boy out of his fame, <laughs> this level of abuse is it's, it's ceased to build character, I think, at this point.
2: Yeah, I agree. And Dumbledore even admits to this later where he says, I think it might be in book five, maybe when he tells Harry, I'm, I'm going to tell you everything, Harry, and then he doesn't. Um, He's like, yeah, when you got to Hogwarts, you, you know, you were safe, you were not as happy or cared for as I would have preferred, but at least you were safe. And I'm like, okay, yeah, he's safe from Voldemort, but he's not psychologically or physically safe from his family,
3: Yeah. You can see. I mean, as a teacher, Laura, too, you know, you can see when kids aren't being cared for at home.
2: Yes, Mm. you can.
3: So it's very clear. So so Dumbledore should have stepped in by now, I think, at the very least, because we'll get into this, too. Like the abuse just continues throughout these chapters. The Dursleys are having this amazing dinner. So it's Harry's birthday, by the way, (laughs) when the when the book opens. And the Dursleys are having this dinner with pork roast, uh, which is amazing. It smells so good. It's been cooking all day. In like the slow cooker, or the oven. Oh, my God. Said,
0: the way you talk about it is like you actually experienced this. I mean, experienced this.
3: I have had a pork roast. I haven't had their pork roast. Maybe. So you can imagine.
0: You can imagine, especially with Thanksgiving coming up. It's just yeah, like. and
3: Oh, my God. This is a perfect chapter to read during Thanksgiving. OK, now I'm getting I'm starting to uh, salivate. Um, but anyway, <laughs> this delicious pudding, pork roast, et cetera, et cetera. What does Harry get after? We'll get we'll get to this. But after a hard day's work. He's given two slices of bread and a lump of cheese. Like, it's mean. The disparity there. It's not, it's not even we'll feed you before our guests arrive because you cannot be present at the dinner table, but they feed him an entirely different substandard in nutrition and otherwise meal. And it's completely crazy.
2: And I'm, I'm going to be mean in return here because I feel so feel so much animosity towards the Dursleys in this moment. I I just get the impression from them that they're not the type of people who season their food. So that pork roast probably wasn't very good to begin with.
3: You're Boom. right. They didn't baste Screw it. Screw them. They didn't them. add the salt. When they, you know what? That's the worst uh, criticism you could give to the Dursleys to their face. I bet you don't even make good pork roast. <laughs> yeah, because
2: they're so obsessed with seeming normal. <laughs> that if you call that into question at all, I mean, look at look at them right now. They're on Micah's background. They're affronted.
3: There were a lot of ways that could go, Laura, when you said you're going to be mean to the Dursleys, but I wasn't prepared for they don't make a good pot roast. You know, I'm
2: trying to keep it age-appropriate, right? Like, we've, we've got a, a wide listenership.
3: Oh. <laughs> yeah. Great. But Micah, you had a point here about again, the magic word that they yeah, all freak out L- about.
1: Laura alluded to this earlier, but This is when they're eating breakfast and Harry tells Dudley to basically say the magic word, please, when he asked for something. And the Dursleys just completely lose it. And this just speaks to the fact that, to me, I see the Dursleys as the Death Eaters of the muggle world. While the Death Eaters promote their pure blood mania – The Dursleys are all about purity of a different kind, right? They are about doing things a very conservative, precise, clean way. We're going to talk about how they prepare for the Masons, but that really just made me want to throw up when I was reading that in this chapter, you know, like, and you're going to stand here and what are you going to ask him? And what are you going to say to her? And this and that, and like, everything has to be so proper with them. It's just, there's something that's kind of icky about it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I wonder if in some ways we could say the Dursleys and the Malfoys are like two sides of the same coin. Mm. Wow. And what's interesting about it is we've talked a lot of times about how the Malfoys, particularly Narcissa and Draco, are really willing to go along with this pure blood mania and this discrimination towards, you know, people who aren't like them until it's not convenient for them anymore. We see that with the Dursleys, too. It reaches a point in the books where they realize they they have to go. And even Dudley comes around later in the series and becomes a human towards Harry. But it's not until they reach this breaking point where their lives are at risk because of a similar theme that they've been pushing off on their nephew for the last 17 years. So it's just interesting. I wonder if we could do like a compare and contrast the Dursleys and the Malfoys.
3: I will definitely be talking about the Malfoys a lot, not the least of which in in this episode. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So because you mentioned uh, Dudley there, uh, I wanted to mention he actually remembers Harry's birthday. And I think this is actually very weird in a good way. Um, But it's very unusual for, you know, do you remember your cousins in a home where his birthday is not celebrated? The pot roast is not for Harry's birthday. He gets cheese. No Dursley is going around going, Oh, remember, son, it's your cousin's birthday. Be extra nice to him today. Nobody, nobody at all. So can we look towards sort of a reformed book seven Dudley that makes amends with Harry and eventually they're OK later in life? Can we see a glimmer of that in his childhood self? I think it is a bit of foreshadowing.
0: In fact, I'm just going to drop the foreshadow alert.
2: <laughs> oh, I love like the that owl
0: kind of. And not just the fact that they don't celebrate Harry's birthday, but also that Harry is kind of a sworn enemy right within the house. Yeah. So to remember his birthday is very surprising. The only reason I can think it's easy to remember for for Dudley is because it's the last day of the month, so that's just kind of an easy way to remember it. Last day of the month. You it's know? true.
3: On the last day of the month, I often ask myself, "Is it anybody's birthday today?" <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just like an easy number. That's yeah, all, yeah, I yeah. kind of. But, but like, but like Harry celebrates in private. Like I'm thinking back to uh, book one, or movie one at the very least, where he's uh, writing, he's drawing the birthday cake on the ground at the hut on the rock, like after they've gone to bed. There's no fanfare ever around this. Harry can't even celebrate his own birthday. It's a miracle. Harry Mm. knows his own birthday.
1: Yeah, yeah. I have a little bit of a different take on it, though. I I think Dudley enjoys remembering because he can make fun of Harry for it and say, ha ha, it's your birthday. Where are your presents? Where are your friends? Where's your party? Oh, that's right. You don't have any of that. So-
3: well, that takes a level of pre-planning that I think is still unusual for Dudley too, right? Even that, even to remember it to torture him is kind of a caring act. <laughs> I mean, I'm not falling for Dudley here, but I'm saying like there there is some semblance, I think, of future Dudley because somehow the fact remains he did memorize his cousin's birthday. Whether to torment, whether to do this... You know, the idea that he comes up to him, I think, is pretty important.
1: I agree with you. Yeah, I think it would have been really funny if Harry was like, oh, by the way, I invited my friend Hagrid again to stop by for my birthday. Is that okay?"
2: (laughs) That would have been great.
0: (laughs) I can barely remember my own friend's birthday. So that's why this impresses me. Like, I'll be honest. I know Eric's birthday. Because yep, of his old same. email address, <laughs> yes! black 423 Same thing. Yes! And now that he shares a birthday with my sweet angel nephew, Trey. So it's like extra easy to remember now. Nice. But Micah, like, I know it's August, but I couldn't tell you when. Laura's, uh, we were just discussing it yesterday because it's next month.
3: It's in December. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, on this episode, she said it's the week before Christmas. Yeah, can get oh yeah, a little spoons, there you context clues. But yeah,
0: I couldn't like if it, if this if we were talking about this in June, I wouldn't be able to tell you Laura's birthday other than it being in December.
2: I know all of your birthdays. Oh
0: same with yours in
1: <laughs> yeah. in May, right, Andrew? <laughs>
0: yeah. Do you want to take a stab at it, Micah?
1: I have it in my phone. See, here's the thing: like, I can't remember it off the top of my head. It's in my phone.
3: There's in a reason. The God bless Facebook. This Facebook. is why I love Facebook, yeah. right? There is a reason I'm still on Facebook, <laughs> yeah. and when and when one of my closest friends is still on Facebook, that's a miracle. But then right. some of them don't have their birthday listed, even to friends. And I'm it's like, late May, <laughs> isn't it? I'm gonna yes. miss your birthday. Yeah. Isn't it exactly a month after mine? 23rd
0: 23rd yeah eric's right 23rd. exactly a that's month that's how
3: that's how i remember so that's
0: how you can remember micah it's eric's old email address plus one month 423 right? plus a month let's
3: just base all of our how we remember each other's princes off of old serious black 423 i had no idea it'd be useful laura's would be minus
0: five and four days that gets you backward to december 19th 19th right
2: okay yeah Yeah. Yeah. for some reason i don't know why it is but birthdays just stick in my mind like i still know jamie lawrence's birthday for example i was just thinking i was like do i know the other people's birthdays was he in december as well yeah he's december 7th
1: still nobody has said mine though
2: uh august seventeenth. yeah you're the 17th micah
1: it's uh dan fogler day
3: I guessed August you did. So moving aside, uh, you know, from this one act that could be kind of Dudley's, Harry does have some fun. He's able to say hocus pocus, jiggery pokery and actually just let out some of this pent up emotion that he's feeling, which is so important. It's so critical to do. And I was also just thinking when reading that
0: area this time a year ago harry was very much unable to control his magic it just sort of accidentally happened i would think maybe that if he were saying even random words just playfully pretending to do magic um he could accidentally activate something this time a year ago but now he's been through a year at hogwarts so maybe he's been kind of learning how to maybe just subconsciously learning how to
3: control his magic I think that's right. Yeah. And, and you know that, you know, he's he's shouting incantations because now he knows that magic is most accessible if you use an incantation, but he's shouting nonsense words. So I think he deliberately is controlling himself here. He knows something won't happen.
2: Can you oh man what if this was like a a book 6 connection where harry says something that he thinks is a gibberish spell and it's not real but he actually discovers sectumsempra <laughs>
3: <laughs> Then that would get uh Dumbledore's attention to come down on on Privet Drive I would say We're going to continue uh our discussion of Harry's abuse into uh the chapter 2 discussion, but I did want to talk just to sort of odds and ends of chapter one here. Um, this is the first time that we sort of get a recap built in to the chapter. So while uh, J.K. Rowling is uh, advancing the plot here of what day it is, what Harry's been up to, she also does end up recapping Harry was a wizard. He is <laughs> he and his friends, you know, Ron Weasley and Hermione Granger weren't writing to him. And I just think I've always admired how smoothly it goes. I don't think anything's clunky. It's just kind of like a little tidbit here and there of the events of the previous year or years, uh, because I think Prisoner of Azkaban also has a very similar sort of style in its first chapter, Owlpost. But yeah, got to admire just the craft here of giving the exposition that you need if this is the first book that you're picking up.
0: Yeah, I wonder if this is something that the editor encourages the author to do, even just generally when talking about sequels, especially for a children's series because you got to remind the kids. Though I'm just imagining myself under my tent in my bedroom, <laughs> having just finished being read Sorcerer's Stone, furiously flipping through this recap, being like, I already
2: know this stuff, let's get to yeah, the new material. Yeah, I don't need this. Material. What is this?
0: Yeah,
2: yeah Right. <laughs> I can 100% see you doing that. Me just rushing
1: through things? Yes. To that point, though, when I was reading it, it it very much reminded me of something an editor would write themselves. Maybe they just consulted Mm -hmm. J.K. Rowling on it, but said, we need to put this in this first chapter of the book. And I I just think it was done purposefully in the earlier books for, for new readers. But we do know that J.K. Rowling moves away from it as the series progresses. I think it's fair to assume that once you get four or five books into a series that you're committed and you probably know uh, what's happened up until that point. It seems like a tactic publishers use, maybe if they're also unsure of the success of the series.
2: That's what I was going to say. I think by the time Goblet of Fire came around, Harry Potter had reached critical acclaim. So there was no need to do this anymore. It had reached a level of profile that did not necessitate doing book recaps at the first Well
3: as a fun fact, uh that, that chapter of book four is the reason that I didn't read Harry Potter three years earlier. Um, because uh I couldn't understand what was going on. It was actually the first chapter I picked up. I'm like, wormtail? Little oh. hangle to what? What's going on?
2: Frank Bryce? But you
0: know what? I mean, let's look at the release of Goblet of Fire. Rowling said, I'm going to take my time on this one. Don't give me a release date. I'll finish it when I want. Maybe this was the book where she finally, you know, got full control. Like, no, editor, you can't tell me to put a recap <laughs> in this because Harry Potter is big AF at this point. You can't yeah. tell me what to do.
3: Yeah, I can't see the author shying away from it because I think it is definitely done. It really is just peppered in the little bits. You really do need to know if you're going to go forward uh, just so that she doesn't then have to explain Hogwarts was a magic school, you know, when you get to Hogwarts.
1: Well, I mean, I do think there is some of that coming as well, right? Like we do get kind of the refresher on Hogwarts. We don't get it in this chapter, but we do get it in upcoming chapters about the different Mm -hmm. houses. So yeah, there's a lot of explaining that goes on and I just don't think as you get into the later books, it it's too much.
3: Yeah. So here's an interesting, uh, potentially interesting. Anyway, you guys tell me what you think connecting the threads following the magic word incident where they all freak out. uh, Harry is kind of like, well, the book says the truth was uh, Harry was strange. Strange things did happen around him. In fact, he was as not normal as it was possible to be. Now, this seems like um, an exaggeration, perhaps, uh, and something that you just go along with a um, little bit little bit there. Um, but it turns out, and I wonder, isn't there something more to this uh, particular line, given that we now know Harry is an unintentional horcrux of Lord Voldemort's, sharing his soul, the act of creating a horcrux, which we're going to talk about a lot in book two, um, is unnatural, crime against nature. So when you talk about Harry being not normal and in fact as not normal as it's possible to be, I think this is right on the money. Absolutely. Certainly a compelling early
0: line in this book too to to compel new readers or or returning ones.
2: I think so too and and kind of looking back at some of our observations about book 1, I think this is another really cool example of how hints were dropped early in the series that can be interpreted Differently by readers at this stage in the story, uh, you know we we're probably thinking at our first point reading the book. Well, yeah, he's a wizard. Of course, he's not normal. But then we find out that this actually carries a much deeper meaning. Even for a wizard, he's not normal.
1: Mm. Yeah, I, I also think it's done to kind of juxtapose him to the Dursleys. Not mm-hmm. that the Dursleys are normal, but they're kind of Thank the closest you very much. thing we get to normal. uh in the Harry Potter series, I guess from a, I mean maybe not, but I, I just given the the nature of this chapter though, I think you're you're supposed to kind of compare and contrast him a little bit to the Dursleys.
2: Yeah, I think so too. And what's funny about it is we know that the first chapter of the series is told from Vernon's point of view, and don't we get Vernon's point of view at the very start of the first chapter of book two as well?
0: Do we? First chapter of book two? Yeah. This chapter?
2: Hang on, I'm pulling up my PDF.
0: I mean, it opens with a line about Vernon.
2: Yeah, Mr. Vernon Dursley had been woken in the early hours of the morning by a loud hooting noise from his nephew, Harry's room.
3: There you go. Wow. This, this is the Vernon series, as it turns out. I
2: know. <laughs> it's all about so Vernon tired Dursley. Of this guy.
3: Vernon Dursley and the quest for a uh, drill
0: deal. Who wouldn't want to read that? Yeah, because
3: of these chapters, that's so smart.
0: Vernon Dursley and the the Chamber of Drills.
1: Speaking of connecting some of the threads, I wanted to talk about how Harry sees Dobby's eyes in the hedges um, when he's outside in this chapter before being interrupted by Dudley. And I thought this was similar to him seeing Padfoot's eyes in the beginning of Prisoner of Azkaban. And the two quotes that I pulled, the first from Chamber of Secrets... Harry sat bolt upright on the garden bench. He had been staring absentmindedly into the hedge, and the hedge was staring back. Two enormous green eyes had appeared among the leaves. And then in Prisoner of Azkaban, Harry saw quite distinctly the hulking outline of something very big with wide gleaming eyes. That's just before the night bus shows up to rescue him. So kind of cool comparing the two. Yeah. Yeah,
2: I love that. I also just love the way this sentence is written. Um, he had been staring absentmindedly into the hedge and the hedge was staring back.
3: It's so engrossing. It's You're so immediately good. like, what? <laughs> All right. Well, I think that is the first chapter. So it's chapter two of Chamber of Secrets. Dobby's warning. Let's see. Nowhere to go but up on the seven word summaries. We're starting <laughs> with... Uh, we're starting. I need better help for seven word summaries. Again, I really like this first seven word summary that we did, but let's move on. It's uh, Micah's up first.
1: All right. Surprises await Harry in his
2: bedroom
3: tonight. Simple, safe, accurate. We are introduced to the hedge that was staring back at Harry, aka Dobby, who is a house elf and this is uh, actually just really good thing at gripping you i think when the when the book opens meeting a, a new type of creature a new type of uh, entry into the wizarding world lexicon somebody that you didn't know before and you did there's no mention uh, i think of them in previous books so something brand new to start us off now we do know that uh, Dobby belongs uh, to the Malfoys from having read this book before, uh, but it is not stated and is actually an ongoing clue or mystery throughout this book. So it's interesting to see the little references, the things that Dobby can tell Harry about where he comes from or about his family and how selves in general without giving out sort of who it is that's plotting these horrible things.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I, I found it interesting that Dobby is the first member, but not the only member of the Malfoy family to try and quote-unquote save Harry. I would argue, in fact, Lucius is the only one who does not so, wow. <laughs> yeah. We see uh, obviously Draco and Narcissa both come through for Harry in Deathly Hallows.
3: Well, Lucius saves Harry from having too high an opinion of himself, which is very important. Uh very very crucial. <laughs>
2: yeah, because the Dursleys haven't already done that job. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, essentially
3: Lucius has been overheard. We know that th- I mean, this whole book revolves around Lucius Malfoy's plot to offload this old diary. Of Voldemort's. He d- presumably doesn't know what it does exactly, but he knows it's going to cause havoc. He knows it might discredit Arthur Weasley, uh, which is events later in the book. But in general, these things are so bad that Dobby literally breaks the magical enchantment to- that ke- would keep him from fully betraying his uh, family and goes and warns arguably the indirect target of some of these, uh, you know, plots against it. And that's really amazing for Dobby. We did a poll during our Slug Club uh, hangout recently this past week, and at least 50% of people said that Dobby was extremely annoying and not redeemable uh, for how annoying mm-hmm. he is. And I was one of them as well. But you got to kind of admire sort of the strength that it took to surely to be able to do all of this for Harry, essentially for Harry.
2: Yeah. And I, maybe I'm going to be the Dobby apologist of the panel, um, because knowing what we know, about how house elves are treated in this world and particularly about how Dobby is treated by the Malfoys this makes complete sense we also see that Dobby he he's maybe he sticks out as being a little bit unusual amongst house elves because he expresses opinions that we don't see other house elves as readily express like we see him express reverence for Albus Dumbledore. He loves Albus Dumbledore. He says that he's one of the greatest wizards of all time, even though he's living in a house where I'm sure Dumbledore gets badmouthed all the time.
3: That is proof, you're right, Laura, that he has opinions of his own, because he's not yeah. getting that from any of the Malfoys.
2: Right. And I also think it's just an interesting juxtaposition if we think about Dobby and Creature here. Both of them... Betray their masters to really significant results. In this case, Dobby is literally trying to save the Chosen One. Creature is, you know, doing the opposite. <laughs> he's he's got nefarious intent in mind. So it's just interesting looking at the the motivations for both of these um, characters.
3: Great thread to connect. Yeah, I think I'll forgive Creature for what for ending up in Sirius's death because
2: yeah. Well, I think especially when it comes to discussions of motivations and and sort of like effectively the bed that the wizarding community has made for itself through their discrimination, through their subjugation, you can, multiple things can be true. You can observe that some of these things have negative consequences, but you can also say that wizards did this to themselves right so i don't i don't blame dobby i don't blame creature and actually i i really like dobby i cry every time i watch deathly hallows part 1 kills so, me
1: <laughs> yeah you mentioned kind of the connecting the threads that's a little bit further down with dobby and creature and and yeah they both betray their masters in their own respective ways but we're so hard on creature but we're not hard on Dobby because ultimately we know he serves the Malfoys. And we think that he's doing the right thing versus Creature, who probably in his own right, believes that he's doing the right thing by going to Bellatrix, but we're hard on him. And, and I also found it interesting that both house elves are tied to Horcruxes. Yeah. Right. Dobby is ultimately trying to prevent Harry from going back to Hogwarts because of the diary, and Creature is tied to the locket Horcrux.
2: I love that observation. It's
3: wonderful. And Dobby knows kind of what what the diary is more than Lucius seems to. Um, Remember, it is speculated, I think, directly by Dumbledore that Lucius really doesn't have a clue about Horcruxes and Voldemort is kind of, his secret is safe as a result of that. Lucius just knows it will cause a disruption. Um, So let's talk about Lucius and when he planned this. Just kind of from a timeline perspective, Uh, Dobby tells Harry in this chapter, chapter two, he's been aware of a plot to make, quote, terrible things happen at Hogwarts for months now, he says. So when exactly would this plot have taken shape? And since we just got off our reread of the first Harry Potter book, I was thinking, wow, wasn't there a moment where Draco uh, in the middle to the end of book one? Was a little bit extra, my father will hear about this than usual? Like, was it was it like the dragon incident where he gets detention in the woods and then sees a scary beast that, you know, is that when Lucius would have said, my son is getting his ass handed to him at Hogwarts. I've really got to do something to destabilize and, you know, really cause a ruckus. Or was this plot maybe in the works even earlier than that uh, on Lucius's part?
0: I think that's a good starting point, and maybe it leads nicely into Micah's point, because I think when you're a parent and you have your kid at school, you're very prideful of your student. You think they could do no wrong and they shouldn't be treated poorly. I mean, we see this in schools all the time when the parents get mad at a decision by a teacher, whether it's to put them in detention or give them a a grade uh, that they don't agree with. So I could see Lucius hearing about Draco's detention and starting to form an axe to grind with Dumbledore and Harry. And that builds and maybe leads into, I think, Micah, your
1: idea. Yeah, I, I think that it's possible that if Lucius needed any kind of additional motivation, certainly the end of Sorcerer's Stone would provide him with that because we know that what happened down in the dungeons was between Harry and Professor Quirrell. So clearly the whole school knows about it. Well, if the whole school knows about it, Draco knows about it. Therefore, his father knows about it. And maybe that was just kind of the hat tip that he needed to know that Voldemort was in fact out there somewhere looking to return. And I don't ever think that Lucius has the full understanding of what the diary is to the point that was brought up earlier. Uh, But maybe he does deep down believe it is a way of bringing Voldemort back or assisting in Voldemort's return. I don't, because we know Voldemort gets really pissed off for the fact that the diary is destroyed. It seems like Lucius can really do no wrong. He tries to make it up to him with obtaining the prophecy, right? So I just think that. Yeah, this all started once he knew Voldemort was was out there somewhere.
2: Yeah. Well, and he knew that Voldemort had breached Hogwarts once already. So yeah. maybe he doesn't know exactly what the diary does, but it was entrusted to him by Voldemort. Yeah. And we, we're not going to know exactly what Voldemort said to him, but clearly it was, you know, this is for safekeeping and... <laughs> When it's kind of like what Dumbledore does to Harry a little bit. It's like when, when the time comes, you'll know. So maybe this is the moment, although it does, you know, Dobby does say that it's been plotted for months. And of course, months Mm -hmm. could refer to the summer or it could refer to the last six months. And it just makes me wonder, does this imply that Lucius, is someone who believes that Voldemort is still out there and he's just kind of lying in wait. And he knows just like Voldemort does that, you know, Harry is accessible again. He's back at Hogwarts. He is exactly where Voldemort can find him. So maybe he was plotting this even sooner than the events of uh, you know, the last chapter of book 1. Yeah. yeah.
1: It's like wait for the sign and this was the sign and now yeah. it's like all systems go.
3: Yeah, and to Lucius's credit, it's hard to see a sign if your master's been gone for 13 years and is made of vapor and shadows. Like, you know, this is as good of a sign as any that it's time to use the diary, even though he gets much flack for using it for personal reasons later on. Um, but yeah, I think that's really interesting and if you're talking about the Malfoys being the um equivalent uh, or alternate to the Dursleys in terms of propriety and what they prefer as far as being normal, these events really would have inspired Lucius to feel comfortable enough to kind of return to the more Death Eater ways after 12 years or more of pretending that he was either under the Imperius curse the first time or like really just pretending that he doesn't support and never fully supported Voldemort. Now he's starting to get a bit more um, secure and a bit more confident uh, basically, to release the, the the book as a result of Harry's um, and Coral's encounter. Again, getting back to terrible things to happen at Hogwarts, Dobby is getting this probably from just reading Lucius's mind. I mean, Lucius really wouldn't even be telling anybody about this. He's not going to tell Draco any more part of the plot in case Draco gets uh, implicated in it. He's not going to tell Narcissa. So Dobby is really spying at this point. He's not really telling anybody what he knows, But he thinks he has to tell somebody he doesn't go to Dumbledore. There's no relationship with Dumbledore at this point. Um, He goes to tell Harry and kind of actually Dobby's whole plan is keep Harry away from it because Harry is too pure to be involved. Let Hogwarts deal with whatever crisis it has to deal with without Harry present because Harry needs to be preserved at all costs. Dobby, I wish the Dursleys felt half of the protectiveness over Harry that Dobby A complete stranger has. (laughs) So
1: when you mentioned, though, that Lucius is kind of planning this on his own and not really talking to anybody, it made me think about just how insignificant he views Dobby to be. And I think there's a good chance that he was walking around his study, talking about how he was going to put this all together, and Dobby was just there listening. Maybe he confided somewhat in Narcissa. But it's very much like the Order doesn't pay attention to Creature being there and thinking that Creature is not going to do anything with that information. So the house elves are actually behaving in much the same way. Dobby takes this information and runs to Harry with it.
3: I love that. In fact, Lucius could have even asked Dobby straight up, what do you see in this diary? He's like like his confidant, right? (laughs) Yeah, because he just never would think. That's such a good idea. That's such a good point.
1: Because- the reason why I say that is there's a line from Dobby where he says, there are powers Dumbledore doesn't, powers no decent wizard, dot, dot, dot. And that would lead you to believe that Dobby knows about Horcruxes. He knows what this thing is.
3: Yeah. Well, and right right here, uh doesn't it come up later that he's hinting to Harry? Harry asks, is this anything to do with Lord Voldemort? And Dobby straight up is like, not not him, no, wink, wink, wink. Uh he to- he fully knows that part of Lord Voldemort's soul is in this diary, absolutely 100%. Yeah.
0: No decent wizard would tear their soul apart.
2: And even if he doesn't know about Horcruxes at this point, he knows that this is Tom Riddle's diary who later goes on to become Lord Voldemort. So base level, he could be telling Harry, "Well, no it's not Voldemort's diary." not his you know so it's it's clear that he is trying he's trying to give information sort of like he's got the hint on the tip of his tongue but his you know the magical um you know i would don't want to call it a bond because it's not the really restraints a bond like, or the yeah the the magical know. restraints that are in place prevent him from being that forward with the information but of course harry at this point Doesn't know who Tom Riddle is, so it wouldn't mean anything, even even if Dobby did tell him. Um, And I think this is another interesting connecting the threads moment as we think about House Elves and Books 2 and 6 and sort of these unexpected guests coming to Privet Drive. Um, you know, we know Dobby comes to Privet Drive to keep Harry away from Hogwarts in Chamber of Secrets. Dumbledore comes to take him back to the Wizarding World and Half-Blood Prince. And in that visit, he summons Creature in order to determine whether Harry has in fact inherited Grimold Place. Wow. Wow. That That's nice. And
1: Creature just like soils up The living room—it's great.
2: He's not happy about it. (laughs) Honestly,
3: R.I.P. the Dursleys' living room in every single one of these first chapters.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you're right. Yeah. The other thing I was thinking about with Dobby too is that he, you know, he's trying to help Harry, but so much of what he does actually is reflective of the way that he's treated by the Malfoys. If you think about it, right? Like, yeah, with closing off the entrance to platform nine and three quarters. There's like actual physical pain involved in that. When Ron and Harry crash into it, the rogue bludger would cause actual physical pain to Harry. And that's not all that different from how Dobby punishes himself and is treated by the Malfoys. And even in this first chapter or the second chapter, like he is inflicting pain on Harry by keeping his letters from arriving and doing all these things that like have actual, emotional and psychological impact on Harry. So I know he's trying his best, but...
0: Well, this is what he thinks is his best. This is like how to deal with the yeah. situation. Mm-hmm. You beat people up, you, you inflict pain, you inflict emotional pain.
3: Try and deter them.
0: That's all that's in his cute little head. That's all he can think <laughs> about. He doesn't know any other way. Yeah, which is sad. Yeah, yeah. But I think that's a really good point.
2: I think the conditioning is part of it too, but I, again... I'm going to step up here and defend Dobby. Dobby understands what happens if Voldemort kills Harry. Mm. Is Dobby the antithesis
3: of the ends justify the means uh, manipulation? Dumbledore side thing is like, like, yeah, that, but good.
2: (laughs) And and see, that's the thing. I think we, we kind of crap on Dobby's motivation here, but we have to remember Dumbledore does a lot of the same stuff. I mean, again, thinking about Dumbledore conceding that Harry's life at the Dursleys was not the best, you know, by no means is it the life that you would want for a child. But at the very least, he was alive and he was safe from Voldemort because Voldemort getting his hands on Harry isn't just death for Harry and then no consequences for the wizarding world. If Voldemort kills Harry... The wizarding world is plunged back in to the situation that it was in. It's plunged back into the the first wizarding war all over again. And I think Dobby knows that.
3: Definitely. That's a fair point. So, yeah, I, I mean, I know we joke about Dobby being annoying, but I think it's just because we see both sides of his efforts. We don't want to be kept from our friends any more than Harry does. We really we empathize with Harry here for not being able to be in contact because we know his home life sucks so badly. And Dobby is able to take like a does what he can approach to preventing Harry from feeling connected. But it hurts us <laughs> all the
1: yeah. same yeah. I mean, he's annoying, but he's annoying because he's trying at all costs to save Harry. He does and to the yeah, to the point he doesn't know any better. And I'm curious, like what motivates him, though, to do this? because clearly there's other avenues available that Dobby could have pursued. And I'm also curious just in general why Harry doesn't mention Dobby to a figure like Dumbledore or McGonagall. But I'm more curious what motivates Dobby because going back to an earlier point, he clearly thinks for himself and he thinks outside the box. And is it just like – what is it about Harry that makes him want to save him?
3: The savior that was promised, maybe. I mean, he's 12. That's the interesting thing, though, if you think about It's like, yes, he's Harry Potter. Yes, he's the Chosen One, the boy who lived. He's 12 years old. Wouldn't you go to an authority figure? Wouldn't you go to Dumbledore? Or maybe it's that going to Dumbledore would break the the restraint. Like, you know, when Harry orders Creature somewhere and he, he has to order him and Creature hates it, but he absolutely has to go. That's like what Dobby must be feeling like. Dobby can't go to Dumbledore directly because that would be against like the most explicitly against the Malfoy's wishes. So he has to go to Harry, who I think at this point, Lucius Malfoy is clearly still underestimating. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's like a a hierarchy of people that Dobby can go to. And maybe Harry's just the only one that he can like magically make it to as a result of his uh, contract or whatever. Yeah.
2: Because Dumbledore would be able to connect the dots pretty easily Harry really can't at this stage in the story. He doesn't have all the information he needs. So perhaps Dobby sees this, you know, as an attempt to prevent Harry from going back to Hogwarts without giving him all the pieces of the puzzle. And that's what allows him to do this. Um, But again, it is interesting and interesting that Harry would never mention Dobby, which I think, again, speaks to wizards underestimating and undervaluing their magical peers that they don't perceive to be autonomous, worthwhile beings. I think we even see this with Harry over the course of the books. He's nice to Dobby, but was he ever like a great friend to Dobby? Dobby was a great friend to Harry. I don't know. Well, uh, well, that we could say. That it was uh, an equal friendship.
3: <laughs> Harry tries.
2: Trying isn't good enough sometimes, though. <laughs> I think
3: Harry's darn good to Dobby, actually. Probably better than Hermione is, if you want. To, if you really want to split here, I think Harry's the best friend to Dobby, and he buries him.
1: the The thing about Harry is that he doesn't look down right on Dobby or or any other creature, really, for that matter. I'm sure there's some examples we can find, but if generally we think about it. You know, he's just in awe initially, but then he has just this great level of respect that goes beyond what most of these creatures have been treated with over time, right? Thinking back to, or thinking ahead to, I would even say, Deathly Hallows, where Grip Hook says to him, You buried the elf, right? Like, you are a strange
3: like, wizard. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You're going beyond what's expected of you, what, what, or what has been. The norm for so long a period of time. Yeah. So
2: all even, I'm saying though is that the bar of what is expected for wizards oh, treatment of house elves low. is extremely low. He just even Harry says sit
3: down and Toby freaks out. Like yeah. that's just a natural welcoming a guest into your home. Although Harry does need to stress how much of a how much quiet he does need to keep because this is there's a major business deal or would be business deal going on downstairs I just drill think, baby drill drill baby it's a very it's a very funny scene because Harry yes. is just trying to be
0: a good person and that's not Causing the problem the way to deal with this situation <laughs> <Yes>. right now <laughs> It's not the way to deal with Dobby in general. Unfortunately, it's not the way to deal with Dobby when there's something very important happening downstairs and Harry needs to be quiet. I, I find
3: this scene very enjoyable, actually. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's everything you think is going to work is causing more problems. Right, um, right. <laughs> so I just think that households are very dynamic as creatures. This is the, I think, the third, like talking sentient, again, uh, Laura, you call them magical peers, um, two wizards that we really meet. Um, thinking of goblins in book one, centaurs in book one. I guess you could include ghosts, but we meet them even more in this book. But yeah, house elves are just another flavor, another special color of this uh, bright, ever-expanding world. Um, So I wanted to go into real quickly the origins. You know how a lot of these magical creatures, such as centaurs, for instance, um, have a long history in mythology, Well, it turns out, and it's amazing what you can find just like going back over the old haunts, the HP lexicon, for instance, in this case. And it seems to suggest, actually does suggest, that house elves are actually derived from creatures called brownies or hobs in folklore. And the excerpt here says, a hob is a type of small mythological household spirit found in the north and midlands of England but especially on the Anglo-Scottish border, according to traditional folklore of those regions. They could live inside the house or outdoors. They are said to work in farmyards and thus could be helpful. However, if offended, they could become nuisances. The usual way to dispose of a hob was to give them a set of new clothing, the receiving of which would make the creature leave forever. It could, however, be impossible to get rid of the worst hobs. And apparently, there's another note, in some parts of Britain, Hobbs and Brownies are called Dobbies. Wow. I never knew any of this.
0: I honestly thought this was like completely made up and didn't originate the (laughs) same.
3: Brownies are great. From
0: anything. Yeah. Hold on. I have to play the effect for name origins. This is close
3: enough. Ooh.
1: That was so refreshing. Is this a meditation session? Yeah, that's how
3: I feel. (laughs) That's how I feel about learning this new old folklore.
0: Good find. Good find. Especially this Dobby's connection.
1: So, one quick mini discussion I wanted to have was comparing Harry and Dobby. I think it's fair to say, and we could have a whole other episode on this, that Dobby and and the house elves in general are the slaves uh, of the wizarding world. And that said, looking at Harry and Dobby, both can be considered servants in their respective households. We just spent, you know, two chapters talking about how Harry gets treated by the Dursleys and and is forced to do all the household chores. He's also fed poorly uh, by comparison to the others in the house. Um, We know that he gets locked into his room. There are bars put on his window. There is a slot for food to be put in that he can receive um, morning and night. He's not allowed to use the bathroom, but two times a day. Uh, These are pretty serious things that the Dursleys are doing to him. And Obviously, we learn a little bit about how Dobby is treated based on what he has to do uh, when he's giving up information to Harry. And He talks about things like burning his own hands. The other interesting thing here is that both are bound to their household by magical contracts. Dobby is a house elf that can only be freed if he receives clothing. Harry is really bound to the Dursleys because of the protection his mother gave him. Um, And as I said, they're both treated horribly uh, by those that they quote unquote serve. So this was just something that came to mind when I was reading these chapters. And again, you know, when we're talking about reading the book 15 years ago, I never would have drawn these comparisons.
3: I love these comparisons. I am like, I get chills, yeah. you know, thinking about this. This is really amazing. It is fascinating. Only thing I would add is that by the end of book two, both have also received socks from their their households. Uh, yeah. A pair of old Vernon socks were given to Harry for Christmas, uh, I think a couple years ago. And Dobby
1: gets Harry socks.
3: Oh yeah. But Lucius, by way of Lucius. Via Lucius,
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. And Laura, give us what you have in the dock here.
2: What where I say wow?
0: <laughs> yeah. In all caps. <laughs> Never mind.
2: Yeah, I, I had forgotten that um that that happened so close to each other at this point in the story. Um it's interesting because I think we start then to see in book three, Harry has more, a little bit more autonomy when he's home with the Dursleys. Right. Like he is not as confined as he was in the prior two books. So he and Dobby kind of, they get a little taste of, you know, freedom. It's not the best example, but it's certainly better than what they were experiencing before.
3: For sure. So uh, the last thing to happen in chapter two is that the bottom falls out Uh, Vernon does not get to complete his sale. Unfortunately, Mr. and Mrs. Mason are chased from the home, or Mrs. Mason is afraid of owls. One swoops in to reprimand Harry, but the Dursleys learn finally, once and for all, that Harry is not supposed to be doing magic in their home. All of their fears wash away immediately. And the very next day, Vernon hires a contractor to come and fit bars on the window. So this is just a shame because Harry, literally Harry's only gambling chip, the only one was this thought that he might turn them all into, what was it, toadstools. Uh, but now they know that in fact, if he keeps it up, if he ever does magic again, he's going to be in serious trouble and not even be welcome back at school. Yeah, It's just an example of how the Wizarding World structure makes sense on paper, but not in practice, especially given Harry's very unique set of circumstances he has to be the most abused wizard in britain right now
2: yeah well and again it shows another example of how wizarding society does not regard house elves as worthy contributing members of their world because there are plenty of other examples of magic happening at privet drive before harry's of age and Harry does, I mean, he gets it in the next book because he actually, um, well, he doesn't, he doesn't get a letter about Marge, does he? He, he panics about Marge and he thinks he's going to be expelled.
1: Right. Yeah. Right. Well, and then he meets Fudge. Well, later they prevent,
3: on. they prevent the letter from going out.
1: My yeah. idea
2: is
3: that he definitely broke the law, but because Fudge wants to save face and contain everything, he's going to like personally oversee that. Yeah. Yeah.
2: But I think it's interesting because, obviously, when the Order comes to pick him up in Order of the Phoenix, Tonks uses magic. Um, Dumbledore uses magic when he comes to um, visit in the beginning of Half-Blood Prince, when he has the glasses clinking against the Dursley's heads. Harry gets no such letter for these things. And I think it's because the Trace can detect when there are other wizards in the vicinity, which is why they let it slide. But it can detect magic happening, but it's not detecting that it could be coming from a house elf. So they assume Harry's the only person on the premises who could have done it. Yeah, I,
3: I always thought that was a little flimsy about because it's, it's kind of like, well, they can mm-hmm. detect because I think Arthur might even say or at some point it was explained by the author that like, Yeah, they can tell that magic has been done in a muggle residence, but they can't tell who did it. And that's the way that Harry is at fault. But it doesn't hold up necessarily in later books, to your point, if an
0: older
1: wizard casts it. Here's my other question, though, is that how did Dobby get into Harry's room in the first place? Presumably he apparated, so that should have have sent off a signal to Uh, begin with. Maybe
3: he can jump really high. You know, there aren't any bars on the window.
0: (laughs) He climbs up the gutter. He likes chandeliers. Yeah. This plot does seem a little convenient, but I have to say I love the speed at which the ministry can detect magic and get a letter out. I just remember (laughs) even like borderline core memory just always being impressed by how quick they were. It just seems so cool to me. Felt high tech. All right. So that is chapter two. And now it's time for the MVP of the week. I'm going to give mine to Dudley for being capable of remembering an enemy's birthday. This is honestly impressive, and I should be
3: doing better. I shouldn't be so dependent on Facebook. Yeah, I need an iPhone calendar to help me half the time. I'm going to give mine to Dobby for figuring out a way to cast aside the Malfoys um, and make it to Harry. It, it, You know, he his reasons are disputable, but he has a good heart.
2: And similarly, I'm going to give a most valuable chapter to... Dobby's morning mainly because there is a lot of information dropped in this chapter that relates to the outcomes of later books and the overall arc of Harry's and Voldemort's story that at this stage in the series we don't totally know about and it's just such a nice connection to be able to draw in retrospect.
1: And I'm going to give my MVP to Mrs. Mason for being the only one with half a brain to run out of the Dursley home.
2: Fair
0: enough. <laughs>
1: So we are going to be off next week due
0: to Thanksgiving. Or are we? Stay tuned. If you have any feedback about today's muggle mail or the chapters we'll be doing in a couple weeks' time, you can send an owl to mugglecast at gmail dot com or you can use the contact form on mugglecast.com to send a voice message, record it using the voice memo app on your phone and then email us that file or use our phone number, which is 19203 Muggle one nine two oh three six eight four four five three we love reading everybody's feedback we don't reply to all of it but we do read all of it and it's really great hearing from our listeners because often when we're on the show here we're enjoying talking to each other we're enjoying interacting with listeners via the patreon discord but uh it feels great to get that feedback throughout the week too so thanks everybody who does contact us speaking of writing in it's time for some quizage.
3: Last week's question, what color are Dobby the House Elf's eyes? They are green, everybody. Which is very interesting. Another comparison between Harry and Dobby. Oh, yeah. (laughs) They both have green eyes.
1: Does Dobby have a scar? I wonder. (laughs) Well, he probably has. Uh, Probably probably has many scars. Does he have a light? Never mind.
3: (laughs) So, uh, 40 over 40 winners. Uh, congratulations to people who submit the correct answer, including buff daddy, curly whirly lover, uh, hashtag Dobby is free hashtag. Your British accent sucks. Asks me next time. Uh, <laughs> ask me next time. Flippity jibbit. Who did a British accent? I don't know. Maybe, probably me. I'll, t- I'll take the blame yeah. as well. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Forrest, right. the 10 year old Hayden. Chill, B. Bro. Hermione plus T equals happiness. Hufflepuff from Warthog, Mage of Melbourne, Ravenclaw from Waxhaw, Paula S, Ravenclaw from Nebraska, the Cajun Gryffindor, getting a lot of house house sorting in these titles, uh, and Sabrina, the middle aged witch, and uh, your local Irish leprechaun. Well, there you go. (laughs) There you go. I just can't resist. Uh, So thanks to everybody who submitted, and here is next week's Quizage Question. What is the last of Harry's possessions to leave Privet Drive? Hmm. In chapter 3. It's a good one. Yeah. Is it a t-shirt? It <laughs> Is it a, Is it a Dobby the House Elf t-shirt? Submit your answer to us on the Mugglecast website mugglecast.com/quizit hit quizit from the main nav.
0: If you listen to the show through Apple Podcasts for just $2.99 a month, you can now receive ad-free MuggleCast and early access to each new episode of the show right within the Apple Podcasts app. And by subscribing, you're supporting us just like our patrons do. Of course, you can still pledge on the Patreon and receive many more benefits. But if you'd prefer to support us through Apple, we'll hook you up with no more advertising and you'll get each episode of the show on Mondays instead of Tuesdays. Just tap into the show and you'll see that subscribe button. And over on Patreon, there's many other benefits, including Discord access, our live streams, our planning docs, a physical gift every year, the MuggleCast Collectors Club, lots of benefits. No matter how you support us, whether it's financially or through telling a friend about the show or reviewing the show, we appreciate everything. Thank you very much. This Thanksgiving, we are thankful for all of our listeners. Or as Laura might put it, we're thankful for y'all.
2: Yeah, that's right.
0: Make sure you're following MuggleCast for free in your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode and leave us that review if they allow you to. And don't forget to follow us on social media. We are MuggleCast on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and Twitter. Maybe. (laughs) To all you Americans out there, have a happy Thanksgiving.
1: I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah.
2: And I'm Laura. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.
1: Happy Turkey.